Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you as we want to look at a, a hard subject about judgment this morning. And Lord, we want to just uh, worship you and know that you are a good God. And sometimes we forget that in our life. And so, Lord, help our hearts to not just take for granted the freedom to worship that we have, a place to come and we can praise you, sing hymns, sing choruses, hear your word, pray freely. And this opportunity, as I you know, like Harold in Sunday school shared about being up in Alaska so far from a church that it's, it's hard to get to and then to get to a place where you have to uh, spend hours. But, Lord, there are many places in the world where people walk a half a day to go to church. We don't have to do that, Lord. We thank you for the provision of this church. Lord, we want to lift up those who are ill, those who are not feeling well, those who maybe are are downcast, whose souls are struggling. And maybe it isn't a physical ailment, but emotionally or spiritually they're under attack from the enemy. We lift up those people among us and, and our friends and relatives with whom we have our contact and our circle of influence. And Lord, may you touch them with your presence. We ask for healing for little Caleb, Alicia Donahue's nephew who's in Children's Hospital. We ask, Lord, help and support and health for Den Castor, who's put a request in for as he started radiation treatments this week. So, uh, Lord, help sustain him. And Ron Brooks, a former member who is continuing to have treatments through this winter, and, and they can be a rugged time. And so, Lord, we also then lift up, we have a funeral this Saturday of Mary McDowell, and it's been several weeks since Dan McDowell passed, and yet, Lord, that pain doesn't go away. The loneliness, looking over on a Valentine's Day and thinking that she celebrated her last one last year, she won't have Dan to celebrate and remember the, the love that they've shared for so many decades of marriage. So be with Mary in this time of loss and grief as you bring her back to you in her emotions and that she would take the proper time and the need to grieve and let go of, uh, of this horrible loss in her life. But may she know that Dan is with you. And so, Lord, we also pray for healing in our country. In the, It was not so hard to see this week in our national politics, the divisiveness the polarization, the anger. And we just pray for healing of our nation. We pray for wisdom in our leaders, both in the executive branch, in the judicial branch, and in our legislative branches. We pray for our state government. We pray, Lord, that they would be wise, that they would not take their public service for granted or as a way to advance their own uh, personal reputations and fortunes, but they may serve with humility. We pray on all levels of our government, local and county and national, state and national, that, Lord, your righteousness would prevail. You have commanded us to pray for our leaders, that they would bring us peace. We pray, Lord, that their decisions would be righteous decisions and that you would bring the peace that this nation needs to heal from these divides. So, Lord, now open our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. 
But I want to do a little word association with you. And I'm going to give you a word that you already heard a little while ago. But what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word judgment? Okay, what was the first thing that popped into your mind? Not guilty. <laughs> Danny and I, we can talk later about what that means. But <laughs> Condemnation? Yeah, okay. Somebody else? Nothing? Wrath. We sang a little bit about that in one of the songs. So judgment, wrath. Is it a pleasant thing? When you hear the word judgment, it's the first thing that comes into your mind is, oh boy, I can't wait. It's kind of intimidating, isn't it? That would be a word I think of. It's kind of scary, intimidating. I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor, a girl said, we taught that, you know, God is like has a videotape of everything that we've ever said and done. And she just said, oh no, oh no. What if my parents see that in heaven someday? <laughs> so judgment's not a pleasant thought for us. A common protest is, don't judge me. Many want to be free of standards. But how do we grow if there are no standards? How do we grow if we think we're free of God's judgment and he has nothing to do with us? Then we'll never grow, will we? But you know, as much as we hate judgment, everybody's judged. In this new era where, I'll get down here, and, and if I don't like something that you're doing... All I have to do is turn on my cell phone camera and I start recording you. So you're not free. If you do something bad, you scream at somebody in traffic, make a public scene. Somebody's there to record it all the time in technology, aren't they? And so it's not an easy thing. So we're all public figures. So what you do could pop up on somebody's blog or social media page for the whole world to see. And it doesn't go away, even if they take it down. There's a record of it. Kind of intimidating, don't you think? Well, one guy wrote a book, a guy named Dove Seidman wrote a book called How, and he says that in our world of reveal all technology, how we live our lives and do business has become more significant than what our job actually is. Think about that. How you do what you do becomes more important. So being judged is an unavoidable reality every waking hour of every day, whether we realize it or not. But, and here's the point for today, God says that one day there will be a final judgment. And no one will escape judgment in this life or the next. But there's one key truth in this. Only God is qualified to make that final judgment. Amen? And what's good to know about God being the one who makes that judgment is that in Hebrew, the word judgment and justice are the same root. They're the same word. They can be even interchangeable. Righteous and justice in New Testament are similar. But if if God's judgments are always just, then we can rest that what God does will always be fair. Do we really trust that? Do we believe that God loves us and yet God is still just and he'll blend them together perfectly? Do we trust in that or are we still scared of God's judgment? Well, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, the people are struggling with this subject. And so Malachi writes, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
They respond, how have we wearied him, you ask? And Malachi answers by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So, we start out, Israel's wearied God with negative attitudes, with really an attitude of mistrust. Here's their situation. A hundred years before, they had returned to the promised land. They had built the temple. But the promises that they were given of that they would be prosperous and they would be politically influential and have international power, those things are not happening. They're not coming to pass. So when they built their temple that hundred years before, God's glory didn't like come down like it did in Solomon's temple. Because if you look back, Solomon's temple was filled with the glory of the Lord. And they're like, how come that's not happening to us? Here's what we're getting. Economic deprivation, political oppression. Where are all the promises that God gave us in the Old Testament? And then they go on to complain that the wicked are going unchecked. And so because we look around, we are God's people. We're not getting blessed. But guess who's getting blessed? It's the wicked. It's all these other people that, that don't even do good things at all. And God is giving them prosperity and political power. Why isn't God doing something? So he must approve of evil. After all, shouldn't a holy God be doing something? They get all of this good stuff. Where is the God of justice then? And so the Israelites have put themselves in the role of judge, the judging God now and judging the people around them. Do you ever get frustrated that God doesn't seem very concerned about evil in the world, evil in our country, that those who act the worst often get the best? Do you ever feel like that? And you look around, where's God? Do you ever wonder, what's the use in being good then? Because the wicked, as the Psalms say a lot, seem to prosper. Well, God has an answer. Chapter 3, the first part of verse 1, says, See, pay attention, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Okay, so they know about this messenger. It was talked about in Isaiah 40, verse 3, 300 years earlier. That says, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Malachi is reaffirming that this divine messenger will come And he will come right before God comes. Now, we know, of course, looking backward, that Jesus identified that this messenger was John the Baptist. And we know that Jesus is the answer to their cry, where is God? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he coming to his temple and his glory? Well, he came into the temple, but his glory was hidden. But Jesus said that John the Baptist came to lay spiritual groundwork, and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance, right? So there's an answer, but it's easy for us to see it because we're, you know, a couple thousand years later, well, really 2,400 years from when they said it. And we know what the answer to their question is, but imagine if you were in their shoes. So the main job of this messenger, though, is what God wants to tell them, is to prepare the way. Prepare is a like a road construction term for removing obstacles to make a level path. This last summer, I saw 
a couple of our boys out in the hot sun on the side of the road right there at the main intersection of Bauman Construction putting down pavement. Right, Nate? (laughs) Yeah, they were there. So they were removing obstacles to make that nice smooth sidewalk. But this messenger spiritually prepares the heart by removing spiritual obstacles that people have put in the way between them and God. And so when it says make way the level path, what it means is take out the obstacles, these things that you would spiritually trip over, that that makes a barrier between you and God. And so there has to be some preparation before God comes. And so he prepares the way. There needs to be a change in life. Do you know that we pray for revival? We love the idea of revival. Bring revival, we pray. But God says, you know, before revival happens, there has to be repentance. There has to be preparing of hearts. And people have to want God before there's going to be a revival. And they're missing that. We miss that. We kind of think, you know, God just show up. So if you really want to see revival in Chewila and Stevens County, then we need to remove the obstacles in our life or whatever obstacles we have in our church. Is there obstacles that we might have that God says, remove those so I can use you to reach this community? Because if there are, we better figure them out, don't you think? What do we have in the way in our hearts between us and God? The last part of verse 1 of Malachi 3. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So God is telling him, I haven't forgotten my promise to return. I haven't forgotten my promise to set things right. And God will appear suddenly in the temple. And in Luke chapter 2, we see the beginning of that fulfillment. Jesus, eight days old, was brought into the temple for his his circumcision, his dedication to the Lord. And Simeon, the prophet, who had been praying for to see the Messiah before he died, witnessed God came into the temple. Of course, in his ministry, Jesus would come many times into the temple. He would come as a 12-year-old boy teaching the teachers. And so God was answering it, but of course, as often... We have an idea of what that meant. They meant God comes in all of his glory with his armies, the Lord of Almighty, the Lord of hosts, with heaven's armies behind him, comes into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, gets rid of all of the political obstacles, the military obstacles, but God had a different way to fulfill that for them. And just as he often does for us, it isn't necessarily like we think it's going to be. But God did come into the temple. But the people in Malachi's time, they're so focused on, it just isn't fair. You ever hear that? Your kids ever say that? I'm sure they don't. You're good good kids that don't complain about things not being fair. But on every playground of every elementary school, probably every day of the year, it's just not fair. Mrs. Flora, how come? And they complain it's not fair, but we do the same. And so they're so looking at the evil of someone else, they're blind to their own wrong attitudes and behaviors. And they might say something like this, well, you know, look, okay, so compared to a a false religious idol sacrificing a child to Molech, which they did in that era, 
or all of the idolatry and the horrible things that the people in this place have done. What's the big deal about me bringing a crippled, blemished lamb into the, into the temple to offer? It's something. What's the big deal if I marry a foreign wife and abandon my previous Jewish wife and leave her destitute compared to somebody child-killing in the temple, in their temple? Or marrying somebody who doesn't believe in God is not not a big deal. So so they're justifying their behavior, saying, "Look, okay, it's not as bad as what you did." And Habakkuk, you can chapter one, you can read the same kind of conversation. He's complaining to God about all the all the bad behavior in the country, and so God says, "Okay, I'll bring Babylon. They'll take care of this." And goes, "No, you can't use somebody worse than us." They're saying the same thing. Don't we do the same thing though? We don't see God judging the bad things around us, so we, we start slipping and thinking our little piddle struggles and, and human weaknesses, they're not so big a deal compared to all the horrible things we see around us. Do you know that, uh, I was reading this, we'll talk about this in another sermon, but Spokane County is the number one county in the state for domestic violence. And Stevens County's not far behind. I have a statistic, and I'll give, well, I'm kind of giving it to you now, I guess, but in five years ago, Ponderay County was number one, but somehow Spokane needed to get into that dubious place. We have problems around us, and we think, you know, we had a guy that killed his wife and burned her up that was from Iraq, and boy, that brings up lots of questions, doesn't it? We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, but not that situation. So we look and we go, I didn't kill my wife and burn her up in a car. So what's the big deal if I get a little grumpy or angry or what's the big deal if, you know, I have these other problems that are more hidden and we justify our behavior. But number one in your outline, God will judge justly. And he will address not only the big things that we see, he'll adjust... uh, He will judge the little things, the things of the heart. I've said before that it's kind of interesting that for some people, the longer they're Christians, the more grumpy and cantankerous and difficult and rigid they get. And you wonder if the fruit of the Spirit as you mature is supposed to be more evident, how does that work? Why aren't we becoming better, more gentle, caring, loving human beings as we age in our faith? but we just justify our behavior. Doug Mendenhall wrote this parable. Parable means it's not true, but it's a story to try to tell us something about ourselves. So in in this parable, Jesus is calling. And he says, Jesus called the other day, said he was passing through and wanted to drop by the house. I said, sure, love to see you. When will you hit town? That's when Jesus told me he was actually at the edge of town and was going to arrive in eight minutes. In a panic, my wife started barking orders to the kids like an army drill instructor with new recruits, telling them to clean up and threatening them to behave. My mind was racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, now seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think we were loser slobs. I turned off the TV playing the sensual movie I had been watching, But then I heard screams on our bedroom TV, so I turned off the occultic TV show that was airing upstairs. 
My wife thinned out all the fashion magazines on the coffee table and put a Bible on top for a good first impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window and noticed some packages had arrived, so I ran out to grab them. It was our new iPhone 11 and iPad Pro, so I hid them under a bush. Jesus doesn't need to get the wrong idea about how much online shopping we do when he arrives three minutes from now. I ran back in and picked up all the shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with all the extra clothes that won't fit in our upstairs closets. I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped our designer pillows on the sofa. My wife hid the dirty dishes in the oven. Oh, come on. Some of you have done that. I scolded the kids one last time, and she locked the dog up in a room. With one minute left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is more than an eight-minute job. And then the doorbell rang. So how are you preparing for Jesus? What things matter most to you? What would Jesus want you to clean up in your life? Even when others are behaving badly, God still wants you to honor him because he will judge us to the depths of our heart one day. Well, Malachi goes on in in verse 2 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. Those are the temple servants who do a lot of the the work of the temple that makes it run. And he will refine them as gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So no matter what we see in the world, God is going to refine his people. Refining is that process. If you have gold and silver, these precious metals, they will heat them up until all of the impurities rise to the surface and they skim them off. And and here's, I love this part of this analogy, this illustration. It says, the craftsman knows that silver is pure when he can see his own reflection clearly in the liquid metal. God brings heat into our lives to refine away the impurities in our lives so he can look and see his own reflection in us more clearly. The launderer's soap, of course, would be used on clothes to make them white and clean. And so refining, cleaning, these are pictures that God is giving them to say, I need to clean up your spiritual life too. I want to restore our relationship. And that's the goal. That's the goal of all this refining and cleansing and all the things that he says he's going to do to prepare you and make, make the way straight and level is God wants to restore the relationship that he once had with you, he's telling them. God longs to be close to his people, but he needs us to be holy people. First Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Our holiness matters, no matter what else is going on around you. So God, number two, will refine and purify. We know God will judge justly, 
and God will refine and purify. So how has God been refining and purifying you in your life? Are you cooperating with God's refining process? Or are you kind of resisting it and pushing aside those saying, I want to pick the areas that God refines. I can manage the pain a little better that way. So I will look at which areas I'm willing to surrender. But maybe some things have happened to you and your family, things that are painful, things that are not easy, they're discouraging. Maybe God has brought a challenging person across your path at work or at school or next door or in the neighborhood or maybe a circumstance that's hard. And he's not to, these things don't happen by accident. It's not a coincidence. God is using them to refine us, to refine you. They're not random events. God's hand is on our life. And we think, well, why doesn't he just kind of leave us alone and let us rest a little? I love what Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7, explains what is refining for a believer, a follower of God and God's family. Verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. This isn't because God doesn't love you. Discipline or refining or God's judgment are not something that we should be afraid of. They are something that we trust the loving God that he's working in our lives to make us happier, more content, liberated people, liberated from our own drives that want to take us the wrong way, that enslave us. God's judgment is not something for his children to be afraid of. God's judgment is something that he wants to purify us to make us ready for an even closer relationship. Malachi 3.5, he's going to come up with some list here. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So God named some major issues going on in the covenant community. Can you imagine some of these things going on in your community? And he says, I'm going to judge them. And these problems still are around us today. So sorcery. God does not want us involved in any activity of the occult. So when you are doing some of these things, you are inviting in the forces of darkness. You're dabbling in something that opens a door to Satan. Did you know that? So what kind of things do, do, do I mean? Horoscopes, Ouija boards, palm readers, psychics, tarot cards, seances, witchcraft, and casting spells are ways to gain special knowledge or power instead of trusting God. And that's the essence. I want this outside power, which just, by the way, is linked to demonic forces, instead of really believing God will give me the power I need. Instead of saying, I need special knowledge about the future or what's going to happen. Well, instead of trusting God, that he knows the future and he will let me know what I need to know when I need to know it. 
And so it's really a faithless act, and that's why it's condemned everywhere in Scripture, Old and New Testament. And these things are around us. You may not see them, but they're there. Adultery was listed. God considers any sex before or outside marriage as wrong. Not a fact that everybody who's a believer actually knows that premarital sex is also wrong, even when it's called fornication and adultery. They're both wrong. Perjury or swearing falsely. To give a false report that injures someone's reputation is wrong. You're slandering. In gossip could even fall. You know, it may not be in a raise your right hand and swear an oath kind of thing, but when you gossip, when you tell stories about somebody and you may not know all the truth about it, you could be defrauding someone's reputation. So we're supposed to be truthful in our dealings and our conversations, that integrity, keeping our commitments like we talked about last week. Fraud is cheating laborers out of their wages, forcing people into poverty and desperation. It's fraud to make a business deal and go back on your agreement because it's no longer profitable. It's fraud to not claim all of your income in the next couple of months when you file those income tax returns, to hide things. Next one, oppress widows and fatherless. Caring for the disadvantaged is close to God's heart. In Matthew 25, it says, Our ministry to the least of these is a litmus test for faith because God is interested in issues of social justice. James 1, I believe it's 27, says, Pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. So you want to say, How do I know if my faith is real. Look at what you do for the disadvantaged, for the least of these. How do you care for them? And then depriving aliens. This is denying justice and resources to strangers as we selfishly guard our own resources rather than being God's ambassadors to, to reach out to others. And I know this is a tough one because, you know, we're in big arguments about border walls and things. But we still have foreigners among us, aliens, so to speak, or strangers, people who aren't citizens who are coming into our, our country. Every week, Karen and I, we volunteer for World Relief, which provides a Christian organization that <clears throat> provides services. So we tutor and teach a culture class to newly arrived. So they're here. Whether you want them to be here or not isn't really the issue. That's the political issue. The reality is they're here among us, and how do we treat them? And yes, when we hear stories about one of those folks killing their wife, we think, we don't want them. But is that what God says to us? Whether you want them or not, they're here, and what would God have you do to minister to them? And that becomes one of the things. By the way, those two things are mentioned quite often in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We're God's ambassadors. We don't have to go to overseas places. The overseas are coming to us. So the first four items on that list, the sorcery and uh, perjury, fraud, what's uh, adultery, we can say, yeah, those overlap the Ten Commandments. Haven't done those, I'm doing pretty good, four out of six. But how about those last two? Because if the Old Testament often says, you want to know what God wants? He wants social justice for the poor, for the disadvantaged, to not take advantage of them, to not ignore them, to care for them. 
How are we doing on those last two, those things that God say can demonstrate the truth and reality of our faith? So God says, number three, he will judge who his true followers are. He will look into our hearts. He will know who are the true followers. One more story or one more quote, actually. Author Henry Nouwen said in an interview, he said, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something 10 times more attractive to choose. Saying no to my lust, saying no to my greed, saying no to my needs and the world's power takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. One such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I am loved by God. Once I have found that in my total brokenness, I am still loved, I become free. So in Malachi 2 through 5, the people doubted God's love. Back in chapter 1, remember that? How have, how have you know, you, you haven't loved us, or you haven't loved God. God says, well, how have we not loved you? But they doubted God's love. They doubted here today that God is really a fair judge. They've spent enormous energy on on defending their own behaviors and complaining that God hasn't dealt with those who are more wicked. And they've ignored their half-hearted devotion and their bad behaviors, not keeping their commitments. And so God says, I am going to judge you because I want to refine you, because I love you and I want to bring you closer to me and not have you running and squirming away. So how does your sense of God's love affect your life choices? Like Henry Nouwen said, you can push away the bad things. It takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? But if you know and you are living in the fact that I am loved by God and he cares about me and the hard things in my life are not beyond his ability, they're not, they came through his hand to help shape my heart and I can trust him, then it gives you something to say yes to. So what are you saying yes to? Do you see God's refining as punishment or making you more like him? Do you spend more energy saying no to temptations or yes to trusting God more deeply? Let's pray. Lord God, we're scared. We all have had parents who have disciplined us and we remember maybe some times that it was very unpleasant. And I know I grew up where sometimes that punishment was harsh and brutal and it was hard to feel love in that. And so we have these images from growing up sometimes that get in the way of trusting that, God, you love us and you love us perfectly and you know us and you know what the wisest, best course of action you see to the depths of our hearts. So help us to say yes to your love and just live in that even when things are challenging and difficult. Help us, Lord, to accept the refining, to accept the cleansing as ways that you are even now today judging us until we stand before that judgment seat to receive our rewards. But we will trust you now and not dread you, Lord. Show us how to trust you as that kind of a father. 
that we can say yes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.